updated on the temperature settings in here. A couple of weeks ago, um, you may have noticed I was like pouring with sweat. Um, like uh, the, the, the exact demonstration of a Southern Baptist preacher of some sort down in the south somewhere where I was just letting loose and just pouring sweat all over. I, know, uh, I was just soaking with sweat. Um, so uh, I asked Dan, hey, can we work this out a, a little bit more amicably where I, we can turn the temperature down? So last Sunday, then I look out and I thought I was seeing breath um, <laughs> out there and people grabbing coats and things. Um, so then I asked, I, I, I told Dan, I felt great up there this week. That worked out really well. But then I think like the feedback was clear, like everyone was freezing. So we just need to work this out. So this is our, our third attempt. So I'm either sweating uh, like embarrassingly or you're cold uh, like awkwardly or we can find a medium here between the two of us with thermostat. So that's going to be this week. We're going to work at it. I think you're at the kind of chilly spot but not overwhelmingly cold. Um, I'm feeling okay for now, but I haven't even got revved up. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how this thermostat relationship goes. Hopefully we can work it out together. Um, but as we then begin with our time in the Word, um, our text, just to r- remind you, beginning in verse 45, is going to be the beginning of Monday morning. A sketch is going to be somewhere of Monday morning of Holy Week. So, again, we're, we're past um, the uh, Sabbath. Then people are allowed to travel, which would have been Sunday, which then we call Palm Sunday. And now in our text, we're kind of entering into Monday of Holy Week. Of Holy Week. If you look down in verse 47, you see, um, and he was teaching daily in the temple. This comes forward after what we're going to handle this morning of the cleansing moments of the temple. Um, So at that point, you're looking at the next three to four days, somewhere in there, the chronology of the events of Holy Week. For the next three or four days, our Lord is going to spend uh, the lion's share of his time teaching in the temple every day. So so we're kind of at Monday, and we're looking toward Friday, and in between there, he is conducting a very serious apologetic ministry against what's taking place and hasn't taken place in the temple. Um, And you're going to see at the end, people are, as Luke says, hanging on every word that is coming out of his mouth. Go to Mark 11, and we're going to kind of be back and forth from Mark 11. You might want to mark it, but it's kind of easy to just flip back a few pages. But if you can, go back to Mark 11 just to see how Mark lays out the chronology a little bit more for us than Luke does. Luke says, you know, he entered the temple. Mark adds a little bit more of the the, the chronology of the events themselves, of how, how we're to interpret Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so on and so forth. Look over at Mark as he fills in um, the data for us um, in, the, in the same passage that we'll look at from Luke. But if you're there in uh, chapter 11, look at, um, you see in verse 9 what we talked about um, on Palm Sunday. Same reporting from Mark here. And those who went before him, those who followed, were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then, and then Mark sticks with a little bit of the chronology. So what happened next? And, and we're going to unite this with our passage in Luke. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. Now, again, this isn't the exact same 
point of entering Jerusalem and the temple that we're looking at in Luke. Notice carefully the chronology of events. Verse 11 again. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, then he keys us in on a little bit of a chronology moment. He says, as it was already late. He turned around and he went up to Bethany with the twelve. Another mile, mile and a half. So, in other words, for, for Mark, the, the, the entering of Jerusalem, the Hosanna of praise God, Jesus is coming. The King David is here. He entered into Jerusalem. He looked around. He walked around. And Luke said, or Mark says, but it was already late. The same day. So, he turned around and he went back to Bethany for the night. That was Sunday. So, he entered he looked around, and he went back to Bethany for the evening. Notice verse 12 of chapter 11 in Mark. On the following day. So now he's king is, king us in on Monday, which is the same place we're at in Luke this morning. So he'd already been to the temple complex Sunday night. He had already walked around and saw what was happening calculated it all, his heart was breaking as he wept for Jerusalem because he saw what was taking place in the temple and its complex. But instead of engaging at that moment, Mark tells us, it was already late. So seeing what he saw, he left and went back to Bethany for the night. The following day, Monday, verse 12, when they came back from Bethany, where they spent the night, right, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see it and could not find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, it, said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. They stood there. Now, Luke doesn't record this event of the cursing of the fig tree. He, he, it's not in play for him. That, that's not the chronology of events that he's working with. That's not the presentation that he's giving to Theophilus. So he doesn't include the fig tree event. But then down in verse 20, uh, you'll see, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away all the way down to its roots. Peter remembered and said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed, it is withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says this mountain, be taken up, throw it into the sea. If he doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes. If he believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done. Notice, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it. And it will be yours. Pray in faith. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also, also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. He keys in on here, and I, I don't have time to do the whole fig tree analogy and, and work it out of what's going on here, but it's, you see what's in between the fig tree's cursing and the explanation of why it was cursed. What stands in that section is verse 15. After he cursed it, they came to Jerusalem. 
right? Monday morning, they're on their way from Bethany. Fig tree, curse, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to the temple complex. The fig tree is an example, an analogy of what's going down at the temple. You remember the key rebuke at the temple. You've made this place a den of robbers, and it was supposed to be what? A house of prayer. Look at the fig tree. It's withered. Pray. The temple, the fig tree, working together by analogy. What does it mean? It's withering down to nothing. It's been cursed. No fruit's coming from this. The house that was supposed to be a place of prayer is nothing. It's a den of robbers. What should we do, Rabbi? Look at the fig tree. Pray. In faith. As was supposed to be the purpose of the temple complex. It's over. If you doubt, look at the fig tree. There is no fruit in the temple. And there's no fruit on this fig tree. They're working in tandem. It's an analogy. So in verse 15, as you see, and they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple. This is, again, somewhere Monday, mid-morning, midday. And they began, he began to take his activities of driving out those who sold. So that is hopefully some kind of uh, chronology of events here of where we come to Luke. If you're back in Luke now, where we'll kind of work in our particular passage, we'll keep Mark 11 in mind because the two are the same scene. But I do all of that so that you see the chronology of events Jesus is walking in in verse 45, and he entered the temple. We're somewhere midday Monday of Holy Week. And what he's about to do in the temple of driving everybody out, why did he go into Jerusalem and go straight to the temple? Why did he speak about the fig tree and cursing it in an analogy of the temple on his way to Jerusalem? Because the night before, he had entered Jerusalem, Mark tells us, and he had walked around. It's Passover week. And what he saw revealed at the temple deeply angered him. So you can imagine he's exhausted, right, after the whole incident of coming in and riding on the donkey and everyone screaming, Hosanna, praise the Lord, King David has arrived. And then he goes into the city and he sees what he sees. I'm exhausted. He's been weeping as Luke told us over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you only knew what made for peace. And then he walks the streets. And his heart is broken. It's reinforced. They have no idea what makes for peace. Look at the temple, the place of peace. It's a den of robbers. Let's go back to Bethany for the night. I don't have what it takes to deal with this now. In the morning, the following day, Mark, Jesus went to Jerusalem. And he told the disciples why we're going. We're cleansing the temple. Well, I didn't see him tell him that. He told him that when he said, hey, fig tree, I hope no figs will ever come from you ever again. You're cursed. There's no fruit here. He told them, we're going to the temple. And this fig tree is an example of what's going to take place. 
there is some estimations, and, and numbers are hard, right, when you're looking back at primary sources from the uh, first century, and then how church history has kind of fudged the numbers or played with the numbers, moved around, and there's multiple reports coming in. So the numbers of the individuals who are at Jerusalem for the time of Passover are somewhat challenging to put together. But there is a reasonable number that emerges and is widely received is that there was an estimated nearly 2 million Jews who would have descended upon Jerusalem in the outlying areas for Passover. 2 million people descending upon Jerusalem for the Passover. Think about that. Um, Every inn would have been filled up. Right? Like in the birth narratives, the inn is full, we have no room. There's too many people in town. So, so every house who had kinship from an outlying area were coming to Jerusalem. It fills up with your own family. Then every inn from all the people coming, traveling, every inn, every house, every place, every hostel, everything is full in the city of Jerusalem. Two million people descending upon it for Passover. And this isn't unique, right? Because you remember in Luke chapter 2, Jesus' own family was going there. Look back there at Luke chapter 2 real quick so you just see this, this is nothing new. This is the Passover season. This is the overwhelming amounts of people that are descending upon Jerusalem. This is significant because of what Jesus does in the temple He's not doing it in front of like 15 or 20 people. This is a massive event. So just to show you how normal it is that this be an enormous event. If you're there in chapter 2, verse 41, we covered this a portion a, a while ago, but verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem, right? When, when he was young, when he was just a boy. So so they went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And and, and Luke tells us, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom for Jesus to be engaged at at the temple. And, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't even know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went about 25 miles without him. Going to be again stripping down 
the cultic and religious chaos of the temple. He's deeply moved. He's incredibly angry at what he witnessed the night before. And now he arrives on the scene midday to strip them bare. Now, one other note about the size of the crowd is simply this. Whenever you have a mass of people, whenever, even right now, right? And I'll give you an example of what I'm getting at. Whenever you have a mass of people who have a particular set of needs, there always arises a group of individuals who feel they will provide that particular service. Right? Here's a need. Let's rise up and let's meet that need. And it's not always an appropriate motive. In other words, where people are in need, often you will find crooks. You will find conmen ready to rip people off who are in need and make a fast buck. I, I said I'll give you an example. Think of modern day, and I don't know if this is the best example. You can weigh it out in your mind. It's just one that I thought of. Where are the most amount of needs currently when we think of them? And I was thinking like modern day disaster relief. It's hard to channel the funds. It's hard to know where the funds are going. It's hard uh, on towns, right? We have laws in place that don't allow for price gouging because necessarily that's what happens. The heart of men sees an opportunity to make something off of a fellow man, and so he takes advantage of that man in need. Rather than meeting that man's need, he restricts that need and he raises the price, making the need harder to get. That very naturally occurs. And that is exactly what is occurring in the temple. It's a price gouging of sorts. Because what's even worse about this particular situation here in Israel, of what breaks the heart of our Lord and creates a tremendous amount of anger, is that the crooks and the conmen are at the same time the religious leaders. That is what is unfathomable about the situation. In other words, if you have to make hundreds of thousands of people moving, and I'm only saying hundreds of thousands now because we're assuming there's many people in Jerusalem proper. So not, it's not like Jerusalem was a barren wasteland and all two million people came. But there's a lot that are in Jerusalem, so at least hundreds of thousands of people are coming. And you would expect probably as weary travelers who have to bring animals for sacrifice, you would expect at some point somebody on the outside, on the outlier trails being like, hey, I can make you a really good deal on a couple of lambs. Because you've got to bring your animals, right, for sacrifice. It's the Passover. So all of these caravans are needing animals for sacrifice. And I'll tell you what, I raised the best sheep in town. I could sell you one right now for only five ninety nine. And but wait, there's more. I'll throw in two doves for the one price of six oh five. You know, whatever, whatever the, the the idea is. There's going to be conmen. Everybody would assume it, right? Not a big deal. People keep passing by. But that's not what he's dealing with. The people who are ripping other people off and making money off of them are the religious leaders in the temple. That's different than a farmer in the outliers trying to sell his sheep for double price because it's hard to bring them on your journey. These are the religious leaders, the ordained men in office, ripping off the needy. 
and ripping off the faithful. That's the burden that Jesus sees here, and that's the one he begins to strike down. So let's paint the picture just a little bit that's hard to grasp. 1945, uh, 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 not the year, the passage. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Um, notice again, he entered the temple, and he began to drive out. And, and the first group that he deals with are those who sold. Now, go over just for a moment to um, Mark 11 once again to kind of get a picture of, of just exactly what he's dealing with here. Because Mark gives us, Mark and Matthew both give us a little bit more detail on what he's doing here with those who sold. Verse 15 of chapter 11, and he came to Jerusalem and entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Um, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, it's hard to wrap our mind around what's going on a little bit, right? You think that the temple complex, and, and, and it kind of maybe just of necessity in your mind might shrink a little bit. I have a small little slide I was hoping to share. Um, of course, this is not the picture from the first century. Um, that's not, hey, one surviving photo. <laughs> um, but what you have here, uh, you probably know, is St. Peter's Square, right, in Vatican. So um, this would be a very parallel picture of the temple complex, of what we're dealing with in Matthew or Luke 19. So if you, if you look all the way to the very top, of course, where the pontiff would be, and, and all the faithful are, are coming and, and gathering to hear from him or to see him or to be blessed by him. Um, so they're looking toward what would be, in our text, the temple complex. And um, at least that many people are gathered in Luke 19 at the temple complex. And even more so, each one of these families in this particular instance gathering at the temple complex would need an animal at Passover for sacrifice. So now think of the amount of bleeding sheep and, 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 and pigeons, doves, etc., that are going to be sacrificed. That, that square would be almost doubled. You're talking thousands and thousands of people traveling to the temple right now with tens of thousands of animals. That square would just be chaotic. Extremely hard to like bring order. And you remember our Lord saying, that is what this temple complex is. It is a house of prayer. It's turned into absolute utter chaos. Josephus, who we read from last week, first century historian who documented the fall of Jerusalem, which is the passage we dealt with last week that happens roughly 40 years after our Lord is crucified and the Romans descend upon Jerusalem and utterly decimated. Josephus, the same historian, writes this about the scene in your mind. That would be like the first century where our Lord is right now in the text. Josephus first century historian chronicling it, writes this. That one year at Passover, 
255,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. End quote. 255,000. Now again, even if Josephus is off by 100 or two, I mean, we're not exactly sure. Like, did you count them all? How exactly did you arrive at 255,000? Is this wildly conflated? No, it, it can't be, right? I mean, it, it's... It, Think about the tens of thousands of people. 255,000 lambs bought and sold. This is a massive event. Now, what's difficult to wrap our minds around, I think, in this kind of noise and, and the volume and 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 the arguing, everything that's taking place, Jesus goes up into that area where we would say the pontiff is, and he begins throwing over furniture. Now, again, how everybody saw all that was taking place is, is hard to know exactly because there's that many people, and it would seem like a small little scene on the side. So it's hard to know exactly how everybody saw all that he was doing and driving everybody out. But what he did, according to this text, is he shut it down. That's an attention-gathering moment. Like We've all descended upon Jerusalem for this one purpose, and we're all in St. Peter's Square looking to the temple to have our turn at sacrifice. And he said, shut it down. Notice why in verse 45 and 46, again, he entered the temple from what he saw the night before, went straight to the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold. You're gone. You're out of here. Now, remember, there's probably thousands of booths. Um, word spread quickly, I'm guessing. Like, hey, Jesus is shutting this down um, because there's not one seller. There are thousands of people going on here. He shut down and drove out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer. But what you have done is you have made it a den of robbers. If you could more crudely translate uh, den of robbers, it would be cave of bandits place that hides illegitimate men. That's what the temple is doing. The cultic and religious life of Israel is in the toilet. And the men who perpetuate it are hiding out in the open. Now again, they thought Jesus would come and he would start stripping down the Romans, right? He begins to strip down the church. No, 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 you need to deal with the, the, the politics of the situation, the Roman rulers. No, I'm going to deal with the church. That's what needs purging. The church itself has turned the sanctuary of God, the place of access and worship, into a cave that protects illegitimate men. Those who steal and rob instead of pray and care and lead and encourage preach and teach. They steal from you. 
Again, this is the indictment of religious life in Israel. Those who are ordained under the temple ministry are those who are stealing from the very sincere people who come for worship, and they're selling the price of admission. The medieval church kind of dealt with this same thing, right? Selling access to God or selling spiritual wares to encourage the faithful. You, you, the ladies just went through the, the um, Bible study of the, the 500 years of the Reformation. And again, the selling of access or the selling of assurance. The church having this desire to constantly sell and make money off of the religiously vulnerable. The comment about the pigeons is, is, is interesting. He, he overthrows the chairs of those who are selling pigeons. There were more animals that were being sold than pigeons. Why select the pigeons? Pigeons are roughly worth, if we were to, to kind of go tick for tack in currency, a pigeon would have been worth 10 cents. So why is he noting that he went after the pigeon seller so harshly? Because those who were the weakest, those who were the most poor, were the ones who were most vulnerable. And it didn't matter. The religious leaders were seeking to destroy the conscience of the faithful and the vulnerable, to prey upon the weak. It's bad enough if you could afford to get one of the high-priced animals. It's bad enough. And I say high price because the, 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 the con men were working off of two elements, right, at the, at the temple complex. It worked like this. You, you show up in, in, in uh, uh, Jerusalem. We'll just call it, never mind that St. Peter's will say it's Jerusalem, right? You show up here and you are bring your animal for sacrifice. Let's say you did. Some would choose to buy when they get there. You know, like when I get there, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get what's necessary because, again, it's going to cost us more to feed it, to bring it, to water it, to keep it going. What if it's blemished by the time we get there? So many people didn't make transit with their sacrificial animals. You'd wait until you get there. Well, hey, there we go. People are going to be in need. So we'll plan each year to put up our booth when people are in need. And guess what? Do you think in your mind that that was a fair price? No. History, again, is a little bit tricky to get, but estimates are that the inflation rates on the animals were 15 times the standard price. They're selling access. So you show up with your animal and you say, hey, get in the line. Everybody who needs their animal checked by a Levitical priest for sacrifice, form a line over here. We've got a priest right here ordained in office. He'll check out the animal, and if it passes... Onto the altar you go. If you want to have your pigeons checked, bring things over in this sign. Everybody get orderly. You can see that taking place with tens of thousands of people. Now, would it be bad to sell if somebody was in need? doesn't seem like it, right? So it's not that the is that if somebody was outside the temple complex and needed an animal and they were helped to provide for that family to do sacrifice and that family sacrificially purchased and then did the point is it was manipulative right they're, they're, they're selling animals in the temple complex and they're doing it in such an unjust way 
So you come and you bring your animal and you say, here's our animal. And they say, you know what? It's not going to pass inspection. There's a problem with this animal. What? How? Well, look at its ear. It has some leather missing. Or whatever have you. Whatever the, it, remember, it can't be with blemish. Don't worry, though. Don't worry. You'll still be able to sacrifice. You'll still be able to be faithful. You just have to join the line over here. What's that line over there? Animals for sale that are pre-owned and pre-approved. Get your pre-owned BMW idea. It has been pre-owned, pre-approved, and we stand by it. So you can have fast pass. Go over here and hop in it and buy one that's already pre-approved and bring your animal. But this animal's fine. No, it's not. You're going to have to purchase from us. I don't have any money to purchase from you. Well, then I guess you're not faithful. So Jesus sees this going on, and even down to 10 cents for a dove. And the religious leaders are destroying the people. The other element where he gets so angry at the manipulation and the selling of access to God, because again, you're not getting to the altar unless you bring it rightly by law. Well, who's going to judge the law? We are. What's the matter with my sheep? I found something. You can't have access unless you pay us. The other group, besides those who are selling animals in the temple complex, where they shouldn't have been, are the money changers. So it's kind of the same thing. If you go overseas, is it cheaper to go to the bank before you do it, or is it easier to do it at like an international airport? I mean, chances are it's better to do it at your bank before you go. That same kind of thing where it's like you're in need and you're in a tough spot and you need the currency exchanged. Part of the currency exchanging is another tack on. Is this money good here? I have a U.S. dollar. They're like, no, it has an image of Caesar on it. That money is no good here. We don't allow you to use that currency, but it's the currency I have. Don't worry about it. We got you covered. Just go see the money changers. They'll switch currency for you, and then you can use the appropriate currency for sacrifice. You can use the appropriate currency to purchase in here. Don't worry about it. So my lamb was denied. I need to purchase one, and here's my money, and my money's no good. Yeah, but for a small fee, we'll exchange it. I mean, are you going to quibble over a few bucks? Don't you want access to the sacrifice? Don't you want your family to be cleansed? Don't you want to be faithful? Why are you sitting here giving me a hard time about a few extra dollars? This is what's taking place to tens of thousands of people. So if a lamb was, let's say, an animal, was worth $5, and it's a $5 fee, do the math to the tunes of tens of thousands of people. They're getting rich by selling access to God. You have no peace because you have no assurance. You have no acceptance. You have no access. Unless you'd like to pay us and then we'll let you through. Of course, the exchange rate on the currency is through the roof as well. Same thing. They're making hand over fist Money on the backs of the faithful. Look at the action that Jesus very obviously would take. Look in the text. 
and he entered the temple and he began to drive them out. He drove out those who sold, that is, who sold the doves, even the ten cents or the animals. He drove them out in front of tens of thousands of people, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. That's what this is. Humble meditation and prayers of thanksgiving, sacrifice of spirit. But you, the religious people, those ordained to religious office, you crooks, you've made it a hideout for yourselves. You have made it a cave of bandits. You've made it a den of robbers. Now, again, you can imagine, go over to the description of Mark. He, as I said, he adds a little bit of detail here that I think is important to recognize of what's taking place in Mark 11, of what's taking place in the driving out. I mentioned it briefly before, but look at verse 15 again of Mark 11. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out, which is what Luke says as well, right? Drive out those who sold. And then Mark goes into greater detail, and so does Matthew. He adds to it, and those who bought in the temple, the wrong place of exchange, a place of quiet reflection, a place of prayer and thanksgiving. People are buying and selling in this temple complex. He drove them both out. Remember, it's not one guy. So how he did this exactly, precisely, I'm guessing he walked in and he just stripped one stall bare right in front where you'd wait for the pontiff kind of come out. He ascended the temple complex and he destroyed booth number one. I'm guessing from that display of wrath, everybody fell like dominoes. Not like literally, but it was like, let's start packing this up. We need to leave. I'll show you why in a moment. But look at the aggression of our Lord in Mark 11 once again. And he overturned the tables. Luke leaves that detail out. Both Matthew and Mark add it in to show the ferocity of his wrath. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. Don't worry, that currency's no good here. Well, then how am I going to buy and have access for my family? We'll, we'll just charge you a few bucks, but we'll exchange it for you at a decent cost. No, Jesus says. No, no, no. That's not what you do here. So he overturned their tables, flipping over the furniture in front of tens of thousands of people. The next piece, notice also, very graphic. He ripped over the seats of those who sold pigeons. So he walks up where everybody is watching, the bleeding of sheep, the mooing of animals, large noise, birds, arguments, chaos. What would be the natural reaction of a person who is denied? Your animal doesn't pass. What are you talking about? No, it doesn't work. There's no blemish on this animal. We've done everything to make sure this animal is in pristine condition for the sake of our family. This is what we can afford. It doesn't pass. No. Yes, it does. No, it doesn't. To tens of thousands of people. Our Lord ascends the temple and just grabs a table and throws it over. Guy sitting down. Chairs flung out from underneath them and thrown across the temple complex. Get out. Everybody, get out. 
Verse 16 of Mark 11 adds yet another interesting piece to the picture, which, as I said, I'm not sure how it happened, but it effectively happened, verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He decimated their money-making scheme of selling access to God have to ask in the passage why didn't they just shut him down again to the picture he walks up to a temple complex with multiple men surrounding him they're hard at work making money that they've been making for years and one man walks up takes a table flips it over money goes over guy sitting down he's looking all right let me see i might say this pigeon his chair is yanked out he lands on the ground and the lord takes the chair and throws it across the complex and it's like nobody's doing this anymore why wouldn't they turn and destroy him like again this is monday why isn't the crucifixion going down now or at least something's of a severe beating Because he has mass multitudes in support. The yoke is being broken. The burden is being lifted. The multitudes are cheering him on. Someone needs to clean this up. Here comes the Lord. I'm here to clean it up and shut it down. Mass crowd support. Because you know it's not coming supported from the men who are landing on the ground or the table's being broken. They're not just going to be understanding and be like, well, maybe we ought to rethink things. He makes a good point. We have been pretty harsh. Look at the passage in Luke, if you don't mind, for the conclusion of our time. Verse 47 and he was teaching daily in the temple. Mark said, nobody's coming in and nobody's going out. We're shutting it down. Proceeding forward, verse 47. And as he was teaching daily in the temple, back to the scene of our Lord overthrowing the table and so forth, look at the comment of verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes, that is, the entire religious society, organizing principle, those ordained, the scholars is the scribes, right? So they went to the best schools, have the best degrees, understand the law perfectly. They're at root ripping off everybody. The chief priests who are getting the most finances, kickbacks from selling access, are still seething at the embarrassment in front of the crowds. So their response to what Jesus did the day before, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, they were seeking to destroy him. Natural response, right? To a truth teller who speaks to power and corruption. He must be destroyed. Do you remember, it's interesting, in John 11, the, the comment that the same group made at John 11 at the resurrection of Lazarus. They were like, dude, we got to shut this guy down. If we don't, do you know what's going to happen to all of us? Interesting, right? The Romans are going to come down here and take away our land and our nation. Oh, wait, that did happen 40 years later 
Not because they didn't shut him down effectively, because they didn't repent and believe. That's not changing their perspective on this. Jesus needs to be destroyed. Back to the temple imagery. He's in there, flipping over the tables, pulling out the chairs, tossing them around, and saying, nobody comes up here again. This is shut down. Thousands, tens of thousands of people there. Those who are on their backs are thinking, let's rise up and let's take this guy. You know, there's one of him, several of us. Wait, 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 wait. No, not so much. Look at the passage. Verse 48. But they did not find anything they could do. Why not? Because Jesus had overwhelming crowd support for all the people were hanging on his words. It's like the scene in, um, uh, what is that, um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where like, do you remember at the end, everything's been frozen over, and then there's that sacrifice, and like heat starts moving across the land, and everything turns to summer again? Yeah, it's like that same imagery the, the crowd, they sense there's a burden being lifted. There's a yoke that's being broken. And they're hanging on his every word. Meanwhile, they're over here. The religious leaders are seething with wrath. We need to trip him up. We need to see him destroyed. We're losing all our money. We're losing all our The last question of the passage is what words precisely were they hanging on? Why was there such a, a thaw coming? Why was there like starting at the front where the pontiff is, like summer is coming right off of those steps and going across a frozen, uh, a frozen tens of thousands of people and they're moving from like ice to summer. Why is that occurring? How is that, what are the words that they're hanging on? Look at the passage beginning in chapter 20. One of the days. Out of the many days of verse 47. One day, Jesus was teaching the people in the temple. And he was preaching the gospel. that you can have access, pure access, direct unilateral access, through faith. They're denying you access. They're robbers. have assurance, you can have access through faith. He was preaching to them a summer thaw of the gospel. 
our last passage this morning of maybe the contents of some of his sermons. Look at Romans 5. We'll end there. Romans 5. To the multitudes who overwhelmingly supported him, the thought of what they were hanging on his every word, which pinned down the corrupt, that they could not kill him yet. And then you see in chapter 20, as he's preaching the gospel, somebody engages him. And we'll look at that next week because they ask him, by what authority are you saying all of this? Who do you think you are to say they can have access, to say that it comes through faith alone, that their sins can be forgiven them, that when they pray, they ought to pray like this, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who gave you such authority? to bring peace and assurance. Final comment of our time is that access then is how we have access now. It's very simple. We have access through faith. A faith that rests, as I say again and again and again, a faith that rests on Christ alone as its true and sole object. Look at verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand And we rejoice in the glory, in the hope of the glory of God. They were selling access. Access to God cannot be purchased or performed. It is received. It is received through faith that rests on Christ as its sole and true object. The people, when they heard that, They were hanging on his every word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the